Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. With the U.S. reaching its $31.4 trillion debt ceiling, the Republicans and Democrats in Washington are set to spar over raising the debt limit. To sort through what's going on and whether the Twitter idea of minting a trillion-dollar coin could be the government's get-out-of-jail-free card, I'm joined again by my AEI colleague, Michael Strain. Michael is a director of economic policy studies and the Arthur F. Burns Scholar in Political Economy here at the American Enterprise Institute. He is also a member of the Committee on Automation and the Workforce of the National Academy of Sciences. Mike, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me back. Uh, you've been writing uh, a bit about the debt ceiling. Uh, what's the problem there? The problem is that the debt ceiling may not be raised in time to avoid either a default in which the United States would not meet our obligations to bondholders or raised in time to prevent uh, substantial spending cuts on things like social security benefits, military salaries, um, FBI, things of that nature. What is the real risk? I mean, we had a similar incident back in 2011. What were sort of the impacts uh, in the markets back then? If markets think that there's a risk that the U.S. will not honor its debts, uh, then at a minimum, you're going to get substantial market volatility. You're going to see a big plunge in consumer confidence about uh, the economic outlook. And you know, consumer spending is uh, heavily affected by that outlook. So you see kind of a slowdown in consumer spending. You see an increase in interest rates for U.S. bonds that will be maturing around the period in which the government's borrowing authority might expire, around the period in which the government might. Is that, is that a lingering effect where in the future rates will have to be higher to compensate investors for these marginally increased risks that will default or will go through this kind of procedure again? I think there's a I think there's a real risk of a lasting effect. You know, um, the U.S. had a uh, what you might call a technical default in 1979. There was, um, uh, you know, similar to what we may see this summer. There was um, some drama around increasing the debt ceiling. The debt ceiling was lifted in time to allow the Treasury Department to continue borrowing to meet our obligations. Uh, but due to um, some uh, IT issues, the U.S. was late on some payments. That increased interest rates, and there are economists who think that interest rates have been uh, higher than they would have been since then uh, because markets kind of priced in um, some additional risk around whether or not uh, the U.S. Would, would meet its obligations. I think, um, you know, if if there's, uh, you know, kind of a run-up to the debt ceiling, uncertainty about whether it will be lifted, but 
as happened in 2011, as happened in 2013, if it if it is lifted uh, and the U.S. doesn't miss any payments, um, then I don't think that there, I don't think we should expect there to be a lasting impact. But I think if we, if we, certainly if we miss uh, some payments to bondholders, I would expect uh, there to be um, uh, a higher interest rate uh, on on U.S. debt for you know the foreseeable future. Um, if we were to, you know, successfully kind of jigger it in such a way that we made all of our payments to bondholders, but you know didn't pay Social Security benefits in full, or didn't pay federal salaries in full, or things of that nature, you know, I don't know whether there would be a lasting impact uh, on on creditworthiness. Um, uh, but my guess is there probably would be. What about uh, the ratings from these various bond ratings agencies? Do we are those really important? Should we care if the result of this is America's rating, you know, goes down a notch? Does that matter? Well, uh, I think it matters. I don't. I don't think it's a huge deal. Um, uh, I think it's you know less of a big deal than it would have been before the financial crisis when I think that those ratings were um, were taken more seriously. The the two thousand eight financial crisis, uh, but. You know, a higher rating is better than a lower rating. And and look, what you know, what are we what are we talking about here? We're talking about the United States of America honoring our financial obligations. Are we a nation that meets its obligations? Are we a nation that keeps its word? Or are we a nation that says, you know, we'll we'll pay interest on this on this on this debt? And then we don't. Are we a nation that says, you know, the law of the land is that Social Security recipients get X dollars per month, but we're going to give them less than that or not? And I think much more so than, you know, whatever S&P says our credit rating is, uh, if we if we start to become a nation that doesn't that doesn't honor its debts, and that doesn't honor its obligations, um, both to bondholders or to or to citizens or to contractors or to or to uh, federal employees or to whoever, you know that's a that's a big big problem, and 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 that's a step down a down a down a road that I don't think we want to be on. I mean, there's a counter argument that given the tremendous run up in debt in recent years. That if the result of this standoff of the debt ceiling were to be reforms that reduce the long-term obligations of the various entitlement programs, Medicare, Social Security, that bond investors would say, yes, uh, a payment was delayed, but the long-term fiscal situation of the United States is healthier. That's more important. Well, I don't think that argument has a lot uh, a lot going for it. Um, I don't see a lot of evidence that bond markets uh, believe that the United States will not um, have sustainable finances over the longer term. I think if uh, bond markets did believe that, how could they not? I mean, it's pretty. I mean, it's a lot of long. I mean, the numbers are pretty huge. You know, 
what the U.S. Big, owes. Big numbers. Big numbers. Is big that? Numbers. And do they care? Just on the other hand, big country. A lot of people. A lot of low low taxes. You know, I wouldn't say the low taxes, but not. Uh, but isn't our ability to raise revenue one? Would you say that our ability to raise revenue is one reason why maybe they're not so worried? I think that our ability to raise revenue is one reason they're not so it's worried. Tremendous. I think that it's it's a tremendous ability. We have a powerful military <laughs> that we can deploy to enforce <laughs> okay. all sorts of things. Um, I think that uh, this is um, a problem uh, that's a ways off, and I think that's part of it. Um, I think that if you if you look at U.S. history, you see that uh, that we have made reforms to federal spending and federal revenue that have that have addressed issues like this in the past. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, pessimism here in Washington about the ability of our government, uh, about the ability of Congress to do things like reform Social Security, reform Medicare, um, bring revenues closer in the line with spending than they currently are. But back in the 1980s, Congress raised the retirement age for Social Security. That reform has stuck decade after decade after decade. Uh, we have seen tax rates go up. We have seen tax rates go down. Um, and so, you know, it could be that investors are operating under the view that the United States will end up solving this problem one way or the other. And, you know, maybe some solutions are preferable to others, but uh, our, our betting that the worst case scenario um, where, you know, we wake up one day and have to slash benefits um, by a third or something like that uh, is, is not the scenario that's going to come to pass. Um you know, so I think if we if we were viewed as uh, a um, a nation with risky finances, then maybe missing some payments in exchange for uh, uh, more stable finances could be viewed as a good thing. But you know, U.S. government debt is about as riskless as as uh, as you can get, and. Uh, I don't think it is the view of investors that um, that we're that we're that we're a gamble. Now, if we start missing payments, then then that might that 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 view might change. Do you find that counter argument more or less reasonable than the trillion dollar coin argument? That one alternative is to, I guess, the Treasury would mint some sort of trillion-dollar coin and use it to pay off the debt? or do you, Now, that is a theory. Uh, it may be more popular on financial Twitter uh, than uh, among actual economists. Do you think that's a plausible solution to the debt ceiling issue? I don't think either of the scenarios you outlined are plausible. I think if the United States were to go beyond the date at which we couldn't pay our bills because we weren't able to borrow. I don't think we would be in that state for very long. I think we would be in that state for a day or two. I think we would have a major plunge in stock prices. Um, I think uh, overnight opinion polls would strongly register 
uh, a view that Congress needs to just raise the debt ceiling. This is the sort of um, autumn 2008 scenario you're giving me. With TARP? Yes. Yes, something very similar would happen with TARP. Uh, and uh, and then I think uh, Congress comes back and the debt ceiling is increased with overwhelming bipartisan support. So I don't think missing payments leads to Social Security and Medicare reform. I think missing payments leads to over 90 senators voting to raise the debt ceiling and the vast majority of members of the House of Representatives and Republicans don't get anything at all in return for it. The kajillion dollar coin, the uh, Treasury Department has the authority to mint coins uh, independent of the Federal Reserve, um, which is tasked with issuing currency. These are intended to be commemorative coins. Uh, They can mint coins honoring important people. They can mint, mint coins honoring... Uh, important people are commemorating events mm-hmm. or things of this nature. And my understanding is that there is no uh, statutory limit on the value of those coins. Right. And so, you know, why can't Congress, why can't the Treasury Department just mint coins sufficient to pay all all of our bills? Mm-hmm. Um, or at least in this case, enough to avoid breaching the ceiling. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think... Um, I think that that would not uh, be viewed by investors and by global financial markets as a as a real solution to the problem, and um, I don't think uh, it is plausible to argue that um, the Treasury Department has the ability to wave a wand and spend as much money as it wants without congressional approval. That's not the way our government works. It would be um, it would be trotting on the our entire checks and balances system. Sure. Yeah, it would be a violation of the spirit, if not the letter, of the U.S. Constitution. And it is, um, you know, it's kind of literally the definition of running the printing press. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's um, the kind of thing that, uh, freaks out global markets as well, so I don't think I don't think of this as a as a serious solution for for several reasons. It wouldn't wouldn't fool anybody in markets. Um, if it did fool people, then it would be viewed as wildly inflationary, uh, and um, I don't think it's actually something that the Treasury Department has within its power. Uh, you're on uh, this podcast about six months ago. Back then, you said, quote, the odds of a recession at some point in the next 18 months are two-thirds, maybe higher. How would you assess the odds of a recession today in January 2023? I think the odds of a recession uh, are about the same. Um, you know, in in recent weeks, we've had some good news. Uh, we had uh, a really encouraging... Uh, consumer price index report, we which which showed uh, headline inflation falling, um, uh, and which showed uh, kind of continued reductions in some major categories of of consumer goods and services. We had uh, an encouraging monthly employment report, which showed 
a reduction in the rate of wage inflation. And that's something the Fed is focused very closely. Very closely. Very closely. Um, and those reductions in price pressures have occurred um, while the unemployment rate has actually has actually fallen a bit. And so this, I think, is increasing optimism among uh, some economists and, and, and uh, analysts and commentators that, uh, you know, geez, look, you see. Um, if we weren't going to have a recession, would these be the kinds of things we would be seeing where we would be seeing uh, slowdown in wage pressures, but yet not a rise in the unemployment rate, maybe even a dip in the unemployment rate? Are, are we seeing the kinds of things that would maybe be happening if a recession were to be avoided? I think if we were to see a sustained reduction in the rate of consumer price inflation and a sustained reduction in the rate of wage inflation without an increase in the unemployment rate, then by definition, what we are saying is inflation returning to the Fed's target without a recession. Yet you remain pessimistic. And yet I remain pessimistic. Uh, I remain pessimistic for several reasons. Um, you know, break inflation up into a few different parts. One one of those uh, uh, are consumer goods. And we know during the pandemic, households um, had real restrictions on their ability to consume services. They had a lot of money, and they spent a lot of that money on goods. Demand for goods substantially increased the supply of goods, which was also held back by problems with production and, and with supply chains. Big increase in the price of consumer goods. Uh, we are seeing uh, goods prices falling. All right, so that's one bucket. What's the, what's the next key bucket? Uh, another important uh, another important bucket, key bucket, uh, is housing. Houses you own, apartments you rent, um, Big, big increases in the price of housing that's coming down. And then, of course, you have um, energy prices are coming down. Um, and so, you know, these are components that have really driven up the price of consumer goods and services, uh, the rate at which those prices increase. Um, you know, what's left? Uh, what's left are kind of services um that don't include uh housing that don't include energy that don't include uh the 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 problematic buckets and there we have not seen a decline in the rate of uh consumer price index inflation over the last 3 months um we've seen declines over the last 6 months uh for sure but we haven't seen sustained declines um, Again, what would be an example of these kinds of services? Yeah, you know, things like haircuts. Um, our listeners aren't able to see this in person, but Jim's got a sharp haircut, <laughs> and that's an example of the kind of service that we're okay. talking about. Uh, another uh, important service um, is dining out. And so these kinds of services. And uh, we're not seeing sustained decreases in the rate of inflation in those services. Those services are also the services that are um, most exposed to the labor market. We have a very tight labor market. 
that tight labor market is leading to uh, wage inflation that's uh, substantially higher than it was before the pandemic. And those sorts of core services um, are most exposed to wages. And so I think we might be in a situation where um, it's relatively straightforward, you know, given the uh, rapid increase in interest rates that we've that we've seen, um, it's relatively straightforward for consumer price inflation to fall from around nine percent, which is uh, close to where it peaked um, about six months ago, uh, down to you know say four and a half percent, something like that. Um, but four and a half percent is not where the Fed needs to stop. The Fed has a 2% inflation target. And so it it may not be all that surprising that we can see five percentage points come off the CPI, that we can see the CPI go from nine to four and a half without big increases in unemployment. But in order to get from four and a half down to two, the Fed really needs to cool the labor market. Right, because that last couple of points is an area of the economy that is, lot of workers that's where the tight labor market is sort of most relevant like that's your like your barber exactly stylist but yeah stylist um uh and so in order to get inflation down to target in order to get inflation kind of from that four and a half percent level down to two percent the fed really is going to need to soften the labor market much more than it currently is um and you know that's quite close to the definition of a recession. Uh, if the Fed needs to increase the unemployment rate by two percentage points, uh, that's not the technical definition of a recession, but that'll, that'll, that'll feel like a recession. That'll be, you know, quite close to a recession and, and, and likely will be accompanied by, uh, by a technical recession. The labor market is still very, very tight. Uh, we still have a substantial imbalance between the number of job openings and the number of unemployed workers. We still have wages growing around four and a half or five percent. Uh, that is consistent with uh, an underlying inflation rate of you know let's say you know three percent or so, uh, which is um, one hundred and fifty percent of the Fed's target. Um, we have near-term inflation expectations for what it's worth of around four and a half percent. And so you know, consumers don't see a return to target in 2023. Uh, and um, we still, you know, the, the good news we're celebrating uh, is um, that wages are growing uh, at a pace that is consistent with substantially above target inflation. The good news that we're celebrating is that CPI inflation is roughly three times the Fed's target. And that may be good news relative to where we were six months ago, but it's not good news relative to where the Fed needs to be in order to maintain its credibility. It's not good news relative to where consumer price inflation needs to be in order to have inflation-adjusted wages growing rather than shrinking uh, for most of the workforce. And so, you know, the Fed still has um, more work to do. And you're seeing this kind of weird 
dynamic where uh, Fed officials are being quite clear in their public communication um, that they're still a, they're still a big problem and that they still have more work to do. The Fed, in its most recent projections uh, of the future path of interest rates, thinks that interest rates uh, will go up to a little bit above 5%. Um, you have that on the one hand. On the other hand, you have markets uh, that think that we're going to see um, less tightening on the Fed uh, and that think that we're going to actually see the Fed cut in 2023. What's what's driving this divergence? Um, what's driving this divergence is either a disagreement between markets and the Fed about how quickly inflation will fall. Don't fight the Fed. Uh, <laughs> uh, or, you know, a question about the Fed's commitment to actually bring inflation down to target in um, – in the, in, in, in the relatively near term. But, you know, in my view, uh, the Fed is not going to be comfortable stopping rate hikes um, until it's uh, clear that wage inflation is within striking distance or at least quickly trending toward a level that is – consistent with the 2% inflation target uh, and that there's some evidence that the sectors of the economy that are most exposed to higher wages, uh, those sorts of core services that we talked about, are seeing their rate of inflation uh, converging to uh, to the Fed's target. Um, and that is not where we are. Mike, thanks for the update. Thank you, Jim. It's always great to be on. 